Anyone traveling in Cologne these days, whether on foot, bike, streetcar or car, will pass this place at some point. Barbarossa Platz, a square named after the great emperor Frederick I, also known as Barbarossa because of his red beard. But if you're a stranger who has never been to Cologne before, you will be surprised you can't even make out a square here. Traffic crosses from seven major roads. A constant stream of traffic jostles across the square. There are also four streetcar lines running in every direction. You can hardly recognize it as a square. It's more like a huge intersection that nobody can really see through. At least once I saw the streetcar I was riding across the square get lost. You heard right. A vehicle on rails got lost. So even for streetcars, the square is a challenge. When I got off at the next station and spoke to the driver from outside in his half-open cab of his streetcar window, he shouted at me that you don't talk to the driver during the journey. And I shouted back, you are in the wrong direction. And I will never forget the look on the driver's face as soon as he realized it. If it weren't enough that Barbarossa Platz can't even be called a square, this square is also ugly and not even remotely worthy of the splendor of an emperor. Ugly, functional buildings from the 1950s surround this square and are not always maintained with the necessary care. The once magnificent architecture on this square with fountains and green spaces at the turn of the century around 1900 has long since disappeared. The green spaces gave way to traffic as early as the 1930s. The Second World War then destroyed any beauty and the new buildings of the post-war period focused on grey simplicity. Nobody wants to linger here as they would in a beautiful square in Paris or Rome. Everyone who lands here just wants to leave or move on as soon as possible. Like going home to the bars and clubs in the surrounding streets or to out into the big wild world. Those who stay here anyway are mostly souls who unfortunately have no other place to stay. And yet, although not aesthetically pleasing, this square is important for Cologne. Without it, the flow of traffic in Cologne would probably collapse for the good. Ugly, but necessary and practical. In a way, the square Barbarossa Platz also stands for the contemporary view of the emperor in Cologne. Emperor Barbarossa was the ruler of the empire for almost the entire second half of the 12th century. Cologne had a lot to thank him for, but they probably didn't love him. We've already had Barbarossa as a protagonist here again and again recently, but I think we should give him a bit more of a stage here and how Cologne underwent rapid legal development during his reign, which lasted almost 40 years. And that despite the fact that, with the exception of the donation of the relics of the Magi, Barbarossa generally did not have a good relationship with our city on the Rhine. But more about this after this long intro. And therefore, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the history of the city of Cologne that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine 
has endured a colorful and rich past and can therefore be seen as a kind of European microcosm. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows from the Romans up until our present time. It was the 10th of June, 1190, and the bodyguard had finally found the emperor. The 68-year-old emperor was lying on the banks of the river Zalef in what is now southeastern Turkey. The unthinkable had happened. Emperor Frederick I, known as Barbarossa, had died in the middle of the Third Crusade. Exactly how he died is still debated today. Did he drink some water from the river in his armor and fell in and drowned? Was he trying to swim across the river with his horse and fell off of it? Was he taking a bath? Did he perhaps suffer a heart attack from the exertion of one of the possibilities mentioned here above and died from that as a result? This is still being debated today, then as now. Emperor Barbarossa, who had ruled the empire since 1152, was thus history. In his time, Cologne had developed enormously, partly with the help of the emperor and partly against him. Let's take another look at the chronology. In the 1160s, Archbishop Reinhard von Dassel was always firmly on the side of his emperor as a partisan of Barbarossa. It was thanks to this good relationship between Cologne's city ruler and the emperor that Reinhard received the relics of the three wise men, or known as the three magi, as thanks for his military success against Milan in Italy. This established Cologne's status as one of the pilgrimage centers of Christendom for centuries. It brought numerous pilgrims to Cologne and, as a result of the large numbers of visitors, work began in 1248 on the construction of today's Gothic Cologne Cathedral, which is nowadays visited and admired by 6 million people every year. The relationship between Cologne and Barbarossa could not have been better, and they never would be again. In 1167, Philip of Heinsberg became the new Archbishop of Cologne, a person who had also been favored by Barbarossa, but the new bishop from the Rhenish nobility had no intention of permanently representing any side that was not his own, and so Frederick opportunistically switches sides whenever it suits him sometimes together with the people of Cologne, sometimes less so. In the trade dispute against the Flemish cities such as Ghent in today's Belgium, the townspeople and archbishop were bosom buddies. The emperor, however, was on the opposite side. He feared the growing influence of the Church of Cologne, which was increasingly becoming not only a spiritual center, but also a real political player in the northwest of the empire. Barbarossa thus supported the Flemish cities in their complaints against the city of Cologne, which refused to allow merchants to travel on the Rhine from Cologne. The emperor moved the Rhine tolls to Kaiserswerth in the north of Cologne, today district of Düsseldorf. From now on, all ships from Cologne have to pay the imperial customs duty directly if they want to sail north. And many Cologne ships wanted that at the time going north because the significant trade with England is one of the city's economic foundations. At this time in the 1170s, the Flemish cities therefore had a short-term trading advantage over the Cologne merchants with England. They do not have to pay this extra tax on the Rhine. After all, they are not even subjects of the empire, but of France. 
the strangulation of Cologne's trade on the Rhine by an imperial toll station right on Cologne's doorstep caused relations between the emperor and the city of Cologne to hit an initial low point. But Cologne would not be Cologne if it had not found a very clever solution. They, the citizens of Cologne, took advantage of their long-standing excellent relations with the English royal court and had numerous privileges and advantages granted to them by King Henry II in London and England. Cologne was thus back in the race, and alongside the French long-distance traders on the Thames, the best-placed foreign merchant group in economic and legal terms in England. In 1180, Barbarossa became an unexpected friend of the people of Cologne. The military conflict between the double Duke of Saxony and Bavaria, meaning Henry the Lion, and Emperor Barbarossa was shamelessly exploited in the city. While the Archbishop of Cologne was campaigning far away from home in Westphalia on the side of the Emperor and as the main culprit of the conflict, the city of Cologne was simply expanded by almost twice its size, with 400 hectares for you Americans, that's 1,000 acres. Cologne was now one of the largest cities in Europe in terms of area, and it was the largest city in the empire. Meanwhile, people in Cologne are not really enthusiastic about the city ruler's campaign against Henry the Lion, after all the powerful imperial prince from the House of the Welves is linked to the English royal family, and Cologne had very close ties with England due to trade, and inwardly therefore tended to side with Henry the Lion. As already mentioned, all this was done without the permission of the city's absent ruler, Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg. He, so Philip, was furious, but his own ally, Emperor Barbarossa, largely sided with the people of Cologne. Why did the emperor do this? Barbarossa probably still resented the Archbishop of Cologne for having pushed him into conflict with his former friend and patron, Henry the Lion, who would concede defeat and go into exile in England that same year. Above all, however, it is likely that the emperor distrusted the resulting increase in the power of the Archbishopric of Cologne in secular matters. The imperial documents that legitimized the major expansion of Cologne in 1180, so the city area, including the subsequent construction of a stone wall, were not actually an act of friendship by Barbarossa towards the people of Cologne, rather it was a practical decision to weaken a potential future adversary. So much for the chronology so far. Cologne owed a great deal to Barbarossa. But people had not forgotten the mischief the emperor had brought upon the city as well. And if that wasn't enough, at the end of his life, this Hohenstaufen emperor, so Barbarossa, also ensured that the otherwise often crawling citizens of Cologne and their archbishop were able to come together and make up after all. More on this in a moment. But how did it come about that the emperor brought the two parties in Cologne, so the citizens on the one hand and the archbishop on the other, who were actually always loggerheads most of the time, back together? Well, Barbarossa created a common enemy for the city, namely himself. Actually, both parties in Cologne should have been grateful to the emperor. The citizens had enormously expanded their own city area through imperial support, 
the Archbishop of Cologne, Philip of Heinsberg, had in turn received the Duchy of Westphalia from the Emperor as a reward for fighting Henry the Lion. So why was Cologne so ungrateful? Barbarossa now feared that he had made Philip of Heinsberg too powerful. Had not been the chief shepherd of Cologne who, through his greed, had forced him, the emperor, to break with his former ally, Henry the Lion? Barbarossa continued to hold this against the Bishop of Cologne. At a court meeting in 1184, there had already been a dispute between the two about the exact protocol and which order of precedence should apply at the meeting. Philip of Heinsberg had naturally seen himself much further ahead than Barbarossa had intended at that meeting. The contemporary Cologne Royal Chronicle, which was probably begun in Siegburg and completed in Cologne by an unknown hand, tells of a fear going around in Cologne from the year 1187. In that year, Emperor Barbarossa concluded an alliance with France. From today's perspective, you might think, that's okay. The Empire and France are direct neighbors. It's nice that there is peace and understanding. You don't want to experience a medieval Verdun or Sedan. The only problem for Cologne was that this alliance was directed against its primary trading partner, England, but also against its own city ruler, Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg. However, trade with England was vital to the city's survival. Furthermore, for reasons that are no longer known, the city had been in repeated conflict with the emperor since 1182 already. In 1187, the city must have been in a state of shock and distress, and so it came about that the citizens of the city, who had been at loggerheads with the archbishop shortly before in 1180, came to terms again. Once again, they had a common opponent in the emperor. In Cologne, the motto was, so let's be friends again. The year 1187 was particularly explosive and dangerous. Rumors spread in Cologne that the emperor was planning to travel to France with a large army to support his ally there in the fight against the English. Because in the Middle Ages, and this is putting it very simply, dear history nerds, large parts of France were ruled by the incumbent of the English crown. This always caused tensions. The Hundred Year War between England and France was also taking place later in the 14th and 15th century. What was so bad about the news? It's good if the emperor is busy in France and not in the empire. Well, Cologne and the Rhineland are in the west of the empire. France lies adjacent to it. So if the emperor wanted to go to France with his army, he would pass through here, through Cologne and the Rhineland. There was therefore a real danger or the possibility that Barbarossa was planning this as a military expedition to France, but that this was perhaps a pretext for advancing militarily into this region, to Cologne first? Perhaps the emperor wanted to turn against Cologne? The fear of a siege of the city was in the air in Cologne these days. That would be a catastrophe, trade would come to a standstill and people would go hungry. The newly planned stone city wall was also far from being finished. It would take decades to complete such a mammoth project. Nevertheless, the walls of the city certainly gathered their people these days and pushed extra shifts to repair the ditches and ramparts they had to defend that were still made out of wood and uh, earth. 
At the same time, the Archbishop of Cologne invited people to a synod in Cologne on March 22nd. A synod is a meeting of bishops, in this case with bishops from the Cologne Church province. But it was not only clergymen who attended. As secular rulers as well, the church representatives also often came with an entourage. What does that mean? In total, around 4,000 additional knights came to the city alone. With their entourage as well, because a knight did not fight alone in battle, a considerable number of fighters gathered in the city. To outsiders, this did not look like a synod, a church meeting. It looked more like a mobilization for war, under the guise of a church meeting. Naturally, this angered Barbarossa. However, as the Royal Chronicle of Cologne reports, Barbarossa had not actually intended to attack Cologne. That is written, quote, It is certain, however, that the emperor did nothing evil against the people of Cologne at that time, and therefore, after receiving a complaint about the noise of war and their armor, he found it intolerable. Uh, Hard to pronounce, sorry. End quote. Here we go again. The offended honor. And as you know, honor is the most important thing of all at that time, Barbarossa is furious that such a cowardly plan is being insinuated, namely to attack Cologne under the guise of a military expedition to France. An emperor like Barbarossa always fights with an open visor. Honor demands it. Honor that was probably not attributed to him in Cologne, and that had to be punished. And this misunderstanding, panic, and wounded honor then turns into a tangible conflict, Cologne versus the Emperor. Barbarossa immediately took measures against Cologne. On 25th of July 1187, he had the Rhine sealed off south of the city. This meant that no grain, and above all no wine, which was sold on to England, was to reach Cologne. If that wasn't enough, the emperor also seeked contact to Utrecht in what is now the Netherlands. He wanted to convince the bishop there to close off the Rhine there too. This would have closed off Cologne in both directions of the Rhine, in the north and the south. But Cologne was not entirely alone in this. When the emperor fiercely accused the people of Cologne and the archbishop at a court meeting, in Mainz on August 15, 1187, accusing them of treason because they would not grant him free passage through the Rhineland, the nobles in the Rhineland were not impressed. They did not heed Barbarossa's call to march against the city of Cologne under the banner of his son, the future Emperor Henry VI. That was a setback, but not a catastrophe for Barbarossa. Unfortunately, negotiations in September 1187 brings no progress. The Archbishop of Cologne and the Emperor were unable to reach an agreement and avoiding a war. The year 1187 was then slowly drawing to a close, and on Christmas Day, the festival of love, which the Emperor spent in Trier, it is written the following. Quote, In his advanced age, he was forced by the Cologne priest to gather an army and devastate part of the empire against his will. End quote. You see, they just call the 
called the Cologne Archbishop simply a priest and not a bishop. Barbarossa was already 65 years old at that time. And believe me, nobody wants to have to fight a battle at that age unless it's something important. By Christmas 1187, Barbarossa is therefore determined to continue to go to war against Cologne. Campaigns now rest in winter, but as soon as the spring of 1188 arrived, things would heat up again. But no one in the Rhineland suspects what news will come from the Holy Land. It was a time without internet, telephone or even telegraphy. News takes several weeks to reach the Rhine from Jerusalem. This news, therefore, only arrived in the Rhineland much later. And the news, they were really big. Jerusalem has fallen. A Muslim army under the capable commander Saladin had already recaptured the city from the Christians on October 3rd, 1187, who themselves had captured the city in 1099. This ended the 88-year rule of Jerusalem by the Crusaders. The news, which only reached the Rhine at the beginning of 1188, deeply shocked the Christian world. All of a sudden, this regional dispute in the Rhineland seemed like a joke. We shouldn't bash each other's heads in, but rather recapture Jerusalem together, was certainly the message at that time. And so they got along. There is no more bloodshed in the Rhineland. On March 27, 1188, reconciliation is reached at an imperial diet in Mainz. The emperor could no longer stay here anyway. He, who had always been at odds with the papacy, wanted to prove in his old days what a warrior of God he was. He responds to Pope Gregory VIII's call in October of the same year of 1188, and the old emperor sets off for the Holy Land. He is followed later by his ally King Philip II, August of France, and their common opponent Richard Lionheart, King of England, also decides to head for the Holy Land. What happens then in the process is relevant for a podcast about the Crusades, but not about the history of Cologne. As you know already from the intro, Barbarossa will never arrive in the Holy Land. He dies in present-day Turkey, either by drowning or from a heart attack on the river Zalef. Emperor Barbarossa had ruled the empire for 38 years. Although he spent most of his time on military campaigns in Italy, he had an enormous influence on the development of the city of Cologne. He left the important relics of the three kings or the three magi to the Cologne church and legally enabled the expansion of the city in 1180. However, people in Cologne had not forgotten which side the Hohenstaufen emperor, the dynasty from which Barbarossa came, had usually taken mostly the side against Cologne. That had never been forgotten in the city, something that would have drastic consequences in the next episode, but more on that later. Barbarossa's ally, and at the same time often rival, the Archbishop of Cologne, Philip of Heinsberg, died just a few months after the emperor in 1191 during a campaign in Italy due to the plague that was raging in the camp at that time. For 24 years, the chief shepherd of Cologne had worked sometimes with and sometimes against his own citizens in the city of Cologne. 
It had been an ambivalent relationship in which both sides were always out for their own advantage. During the years of Barbarossa and Philip of Heinsberg, the city of Cologne changed sides several times, sometimes working with and sometimes against the two powerful rulers to expand its own autonomy and self-government. It gives a forecast of why this development would intensify again in the 13th century and would also become bloodier within the city. Bloodier, I mean, <laughs> more blood is being spilled. Barbarossa was never buried in his homeland as he died far away from home. The lack of a burial place in the empire allowed the legends surrounding him to flourish, especially centuries after his death. Especially in the 19th century, the Prussian king and then emperor of the newly founded German Empire in 1871 saw himself in the same tradition as the medieval ruler of the 12th century. Strange, but that's how it was. The young empire of the Prussian Hohenzollern family feverishly searched for lines of traditions to legitimize itself. A legendary emperor from several centuries ago came in handy. In Küffhäuser, a mountain range in what is now Thuringia, sits a large monument to the German Empire from 1896. At the top, of course, sits Kaiser Wilhelm I, ruler of the new German Empire from 1871, who died in 1888. He was seen as Baba Blanca, the white beard, who had re-established the empire of Barbarossa, the red beard. Despite his importance for the identity of the modern German Empire, which would fall again in 1918 during the First World War, Barbarossa is not prominently displayed at the top of this monument, but, as I've already said, Kaiser Wilhelm I from, <laughs> from the Prussian Kingdom and later German Empire. The medieval emperor sits here, eternally asleep, carved in stone, beneath the statue of his modern counterpart, Wilhelm I. Legend has it that he would wake up and save Germany if it were in danger. When I look at German history, though, Barbarossa could have woken up more often. The end of the 19th century also brings us back to the beginning of this episode and Barbarossa. It was the demolition of the medieval city wall authorized by Barbarossa in 1180 in the 1880s that created the aforementioned Barbarossa Platz Square. Large squares were laid out in front of the now demolished medieval city wall of Cologne in the southwest of the city. There's also the square named after Barbarossa. However, the unfortunately aesthetically ugly square and the emperor and the Küffhäuser mountain range monument have both of these things in common what they have one thing in common both will probably slumber on forever in their current state the square will not become more beautiful in the foreseeable future nor will emperor barbarossa wake up and save germany although not quite a streetcar station at barbarossa platz is to be fitted with ivy scaffolding but it's probably quite complicated to build and then the ivy still has to grow there. Maybe it will be ready in 10 years. Whether this little detail will enhance the square, well, that's for you to decide, not for me. 
maybe you'll hear the episode in 2033 and then you can see it with your own eyes and tell me about it. Interestingly, Emperor Barbarossa, officially Emperor Frederick I, does not hang as a stone statue on Cologne's town hall tower, historic city hall tower, where many celebrities of the last 2000 years who have left a lasting mark on Cologne are hanging around, literally speaking, like Roman Emperor Augustus, Archbishop Anno, Empress Theophanu, or Agrippina. Which, to be honest, surprises me, despite all the trouble they had with the emperor in the meantime, it was thanks to Barbarossa that Cologne received the important relics of the Magi through Reinhard of Dassel, and that the extension of Cologne's city ward in 1180 was ultimately legalized, it was Barbarossa who did that. Strange. Philip of Heinsberg, the archbishop of that time, is also missing, but, well, with the abundance of archbishops, some have to be left out. Otherwise, you would have to build the town hall tower four times as high to depict them all. And looking at the state of the Cologne church right now in the 21st century, I don't think anyone wants that. Let's leave it at that for today. Barbarossa and Cologne come to an end here as a topic. Just as Philip of Heinsberg, the longtime city ruler of Cologne, also came to an end here in this episode. In the next episode, however, Cologne gets involved in the big politics. With Pope Innocent III and Emperor Otto IV, we have two historical figures hanging from the town hall tower. They really are figures on the town hall tower. And not without reason, Cologne is once again using a dispute over the throne of the empire to carve out more rights and privileges for itself. So much so that with Otto IV, they the city of Cologne, almost single-handedly set up their own king and then emperor for the empire. But more about that the next time. In the end, as always, we have to say thank you. Thanks to Sabine, another Sabine, and Silvia for your tips via PayPal. You can find out how you can support this podcast in the show notes. I'm also on social media where you can also learn more about Cologne's history stuff we don't even talk here yet about. Have a look. Also, more information about that in the show notes. At the end, I can only say, recommend me further and auf Wiedersehen.